Good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, if you missed the top of the service, uh, we did some baby dedications, but I introduced myself then. But if you're brand new, my name's uh, Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to go into our time of teaching. But just a couple of quick things I want to mention, too, is that there's still time. Tonight, we kick off this uh, two-week, two-Sunday night course that uh, I teach called The Movement here at Rocky Peak. It's sort of why we do what we do, the way we do it, sort of our philosophy of ministry, vision, values. And so it's great if you're brand new to Rocky Peak or actually if you want to become what we call a partner, what other churches call members, uh, this is the course you take. So there's still time. You can sign up online. Uh, it starts at 6 o'clock tonight. We provide dinner and all. It's a great, great time. Uh, and so I want to make you aware of that. And then secondly, you know, we're coming toward the end of this series that we're in called Supernatural. And so we've got this week and then two more weeks. And then inside your program, you have a little uh, a card, an invite card. And it's called Signs of Path to Glory. So uh, in three weeks from today, we're going into this next series uh, that we're in that's actually the third and final sub-series of this larger series called Signs that we did this last year on the Gospel of John. So if you're here then, you'll remember that we, we stopped that uh, with, with John chapter 17 with Jesus in, going, uh, in the garden the last night he's, before he's arrested. We're going to follow that up, pick it up the story there, and uh, go through his arrest, his uh, uh, his execution, his resurrection that will align perfectly with Easter. And so, um, so anyway, I wanted you to make sure you're here. And also, uh, it's great to, something to, to be inviting people as they're preparing for Easter. And for, for those of you online, uh, I just want to encourage you. I think for many of you, you're trying to decide when to come back, when's the right time still. This will be a great time to put this date on your calendar. We miss you. We love you here. And so uh, that'd be a, a perfect time to join us as we all get ready for Easter together. But anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so if you haven't done so already, inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use every week. Uh, for those of you online, whatever platform you're on, you can just step at the top, click on uh, the, the message note sheet, and download your favorite version. So if y'all y'all's ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's go. So Father, we're just excited to be here uh, once again in your house, underneath your leadership, uh, under the direction of your spirit, and, and under Jesus, your leadership as our, our teacher. And Lord, we're so aware that we cannot make spiritual truth come alive for ourselves. No matter brain power or study can do what only you can do, which is open our eyes to see the reality of these things that we're talking about. And so we pray today that you would come and be our teacher, you'd open our eyes to see uh, this unseen reality. It's such an important part of following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right, story starts today on a weekend. It's a, it's a, beautiful, um, it's a beautiful morning in this, this seaside village. And uh, in, in the middle of this village is a, uh, is a fairly large building. It's a stone building. It serves as a community center, among other things. And on this particular day, the community is gathered to hear this new young speaker that's kind of taking the nation by storm. And uh, he's recently moved to the, uh, this, this town um, with his family. Uh, he's moved his family here. And so everyone's excited. So as you, as you walk into this, this building, it's a stone building, that uh, it looks a little different, that unlike many of our buildings, you'd walk in and see chairs like we have here, um, that the center of the, of the room is empty, and uh, the seating is all around the perimeter, around the edge, uh, sort of stacked seating, almost like stadium seating. Um, and, and so everyone's gathered, and the time has come where they're ready to introduce this young 
gifted speaker. And from the moment he gets up and begins to speak, um, everyone is captivated. Um, it, there's something about not only what he's, what he's talking about, but the way he's talking just exudes a, a confidence that they've never really experienced before. And the longer that he talks, the more they're leaning in. And maybe that's why that no one noticed. But all of a sudden, it happened. Well, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in for the last seven weeks. This is week number eight. This is called Supernatural, Discovering Your True Identity. And for those who are new, again, just we're so glad you're with us. And the core concept of this series that I share every week is that according to Jesus, according to the New Testament, the Bible, that when someone comes to Jesus, uh, that something happens to them. It's something that is it's deep, it's profound, it's powerful, it's something that's truly supernatural. It changes them at the core of their being. And with this change comes a whole new identity that we're talking about in this series. It comes with a new perspective, a new power, a power to change. It comes with new priorities. It comes with uh, new purpose. It brings with it a new calling, a new community, uh, a new relationship with culture at large, a new destiny, but it, but it also comes with a new enemy. And, and that's the topic that's on the table today, is uh, this, this change that happens the moment we come to Jesus, cross over the line, and we pick up this new enemy, or at least a new level of what we often call uh, spiritual warfare. And so if you, uh, you have your note sheet there, we're going to jump in. There in your note sheet, there's a section that is called Supernatural, the New Enemy. And what I want to do is just stand back from the New Testament teaching about this new enemy and highlight four key principles that will guide us through the day to understand kind of the big picture story the Bible's telling, and then at the end, come back and ask one key critical question. So here we go. So we're going to jump right in. So first of all, the first thing that we see when we open the word, you open up the life of Jesus, the first time we, thing we see is that the enemy is real. This, uh, this, this person that the Bible refers to as the Satan, devil, the evil one, goes with different names, but that this enemy is real. Now, it's interesting because at this point in our cultural life uh, as, as a nation or as a, as a, as a Western world, that we, we have a very mixed view of the supernatural. It's very paradoxical, uh, a very dichotomous at, at some point. Um, uh, on the one hand, we, we live in a very scientific, uh, you know, scientific world. We, you know, we keep on, you know, follow the science, right? So we, we live in a very scientific world that's it's all about the five senses. And if you can't see it uh, under a microscope, if you can't reproduce the, exper- uh, the experiment, if you, can't, if you can't access it through your five physical senses, it's not real. We live in this closed, materialist, naturalist universe. And there's a huge impact on our culture, that, that kind of worldview. But on the other hand, and I think largely because of this, that that materialist worldview is a very narrow, very thin, very unsatisfying worldview at the core. And so there's an increasing hunger for the supernatural at our, cult, at our culture at every level. And you see it in the growth of the, the interest in the paranormal, the, the new age movement, you know, crystals, UFOs, uh, even an increased interest in the occult. And so we're very kind of split on how we look at this. But when we open the New Testament, the life and teaching of Jesus and the apostles, we see, 
we're confronted right away with the reality of this enemy. And so what we want to do is we want to develop a kind of a balanced uh, Jesus approach to this topic. There in your note sheet, uh, I put a quote from one of my favorite uh, authors, C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book on spiritual warfare that we'll talk more about next week. But um, today, like sort of in the intro, he, he writes, it's called Screwtape Letters. And he, he writes about the two opposite extremes we don't want to fall into. He says, there are two equal and opposite airs into which our race can fall about the devils, talking about demons, Satan, the unseen realm. He said, one is to disbelieve in their existence. And that, that's a scientific part of our culture. You know, they're very skeptical about the unseen realm. But he says, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think that we can see even in the Christian community, these two extremes, that among Bible-believing Christians, uh, there can be some believers who theologically believe in Satan, but uh, live and act as if he never has any impact on their life. On the other side, you've got Christians that are looking, they're seeing a demon behind every bush, right? Every time someone cuts in front of them in bonds and takes a parking place, it's like Satan just attacked me, right? And so we want to walk like somewhere between that, and, and the Bible kind of charts a clear course for us. So one of the things we see is when we open up the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, we're confronted right away with the reality of the enemy. So let me, let me just give you an example. If you were to look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the, one, of the, one of the first things that happens in the gospels is, is Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it's the very first thing that happens. John the Baptist comes on the scene, Jesus goes and is baptized. After he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. We'll talk about that more later. And then he comes back after that 40-day encounter with the evil one. He goes into the north of the country to the Galilee, and he begins launching his ministry. And his message, his core message, is that the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of God, that's long been promised by the prophets of Israel, it's, it's very near. It's, it's ready to break into time and space. And so he says, so you have to repent and trust me in this, believe the gospel, all right? So that's how Mark introduces him. But the very first scene where we see Jesus in action is a scene that I described in our opening story. It's super interesting that the very first, what we see is that Jesus, um, Jesus moved his family, as, as in the opening story, to, uh, from Nazareth to Capernaum. And it's about like 30 miles away. And Capernaum was a, a, a small town on the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee. We go there every year. We go to Israel. We actually go to the synagogue. And that's the next part of the story. That in, in Capernaum, there was a stone building. We can still see the foundation of it uh, today. And, uh, and so this is where Jesus uh, kind of is going to go on this weekend, this Saturday morning. Um, he's he's kind of the new hot speaker. He's a, the guy, you know, a rising star. He's moved to the town. They're excited to hear Jesus teach. And so we're told that as Jesus begins to teach, people are really hanging on his words. They've never really heard anything like this. When all of a sudden, uh, we don't know if a guy came in from the outside or he was kind of one of, from, stands up at one of the, one of the, uh, the seats around the perimeter, the stone seats around the perimeter, but he stands up and he calls out Jesus. He seems to be challenging him. And so, it's a, so Mark describes him as a demonized man, a man uh, with an unclean spirit. It's one of the ways that the Bible describes a demonized person. And so this man gets up and he shouts out in a loud voice a challenge. And he says, Jesus, what have we got to do with one another? 
He says, I know who you are, uh, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? It's almost like a challenge. And Jesus responds immediately by commanding this uh, demon to, to be silenced and, uh, and to come out. And, and immediately, uh, he, he's, he comes out kicking and screaming, literally. He throws him in this horrible convulsion, he's screaming, but he comes out, and now the man is set free, right? So what the people then are blown away, not only with the teaching of Jesus, with this authority, this power over the demonic realm. But what I want you to catch is so interesting is this is how Mark introduces Jesus to us. This is the first scene, you know, from one of the first scenes from the life of Jesus. And what we see in the Gospels is this power over the dark side. These exorcisms were not a sidebar of the ministry of Jesus. They really went to the heart of why he came. In fact, later in the New Testament, one of his closest disciples, the disciple John, he put it like this there in your note sheet, 1 John uh, chapter 3. He says, the, catch this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy. Yeah, destroy the devil's work. Right? And so, so, um, so what I want you to catch is that, that, that as Jesus comes, it's just like a collision of kingdoms, if you will. The kingdom of God is breaking into enemy territory, taking back captives of the enemy. In fact, Jesus says, and this is not on your note sheet, but in Luke chapter 11, I believe it's verse 16, he says, uh, hey, if I am able to cast out demons by the finger of God, then that's proof that the kingdom of God is here, all right? So, so this is where we start our journey. According to Jesus, the apostles, the enemy is real. Now, of course, he doesn't have a red suit. He doesn't have the pitchfork. Uh, he, he doesn't operate like in the movie Exorcist or Poltergeist. Um, that, that all of that is fictional, right? That we're gonna see is very bright, is very powerful, um, but is very real. Number two, the second principle is that when we're saved, we switch sides. So there's a, there's in this spiritual battle that the moment we come to Jesus, something happens to us that we switch sides. Now, I wanna talk about this word saved. In Christian circles, we often use this term. You'll, you'll hear Christian in a life group, when did you get saved, right? And sometimes I, I think we don't even know what we're saying. Like certainly Christian, non-Christians all only saved from what? And, and so, and I think often we don't even stop to think, yeah, what were we saved from? The word saved or salvation just refers to a rescue. That's what the, the idea behind it. And so, um, according to the New Testament, when we come to Jesus, it's one of the ways it describes what happens is we're saved or salvation happens. So saved from what? Well, we're saved, first of all, from the wrath of God. We'll see this in just a minute, that as part of a fallen rebel race, we're under judgment. Through the death of Christ, we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from condemnation. Secondly, we're saved from our sin, that we now have a new power. We talked about earlier in this series that we can grow and change, and we no longer, like, like the song says, we're no longer slaves of sin. We don't have to be slaves of sin. And then number three, we're saved from the dark side. We're saved from the, what we'll see later, the, the domain of darkness. And, and I, wanna, I, want you to, uh, I want you to see this. In Ephesians, uh, if you were here early in this series, um, I did a message uh, called the Epic Vision. 
way back the second week of the series, we looked at a deep dive into Ephesians 1, where Paul stands back and describes this epic vision God has for our entire cosmos, a vision that starts before creation, ends with the new creation, uh, kind of bringing all things healed and restored under the leadership of King Jesus. And if you were here then, that we, we talked about, so who we are as followers of Jesus, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're gifted, and so on, right? We're destined. But then uh, after that, after he does chapter one, then Paul says, so, but this is who you were before you came to Jesus, right? So chapter one is who you are now in Jesus. Chapter two is who you were before Jesus. And this is what he says, Ephesians 2. He says, as for you, so he's talking about these Christ followers who live in and around ancient city of Ephesus. He said, as for you, you know, before you came to Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You're spiritually dead in which you used to live when you followed, catch this, the ways of this world. That's our topic next week, our, our new relationship with culture. But it says, in which you used to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, who's he talking about? Satan, right? So he says, hey, before you came to Jesus, you were spiritually dead. You were kind of on a freeway along with everyone else following the ways of this world. And those ways of the world are orchestrated by Satan himself. So you, you may not have realized this, but you are under the leadership of Satan himself. You are part of his domain, part of his kingdom. And then he says that Satan is a spirit who's now at work among those who are disobedient, talking about those who don't know Christ. He says, so all of us, catch that, not just, you know, this includes Paul, who's a very religious, high moral Jew. He says, all of us, we also lived among them at one time. We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, which is his word for kind of our lower human nature with its magnetic pull to the dark side. He says, uh, we, we gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. And he said, like the rest, we were by nature, underline that, we were by nature, we were born that way, deserving of wrath. He said, before you came to Jesus, that you were part of this rebel race, you, uh, you were living in your own sin and rebellion, you had this magnetic pull to the dark side, you were following the ways of this world, you were under the leadership of Satan himself, destined for destruction. That's who you were. So, so what happens, the moment you come to Jesus, what happens is you switch sides. There's a spiritual war coming on and the, that's going on, and but the moment you come to Jesus, you, switch, you cross over the line from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And this is how Paul puts it there on your note sheet in Colossians 1. He says, he, talking about God, he's rescued us from the what? The dominion of darkness, the rule of darkness. He saved us from that, and he brought us in to the kingdom of the son he loved. So the moment that you came to Jesus, you may not have realized this at the time, but essentially what happened is you came to Jesus, you bowed the knee, and you said, Jesus, I've been on the wrong side of this war. I've been living in sin. I've been living in rebellion. Would you forgive me and receive me into your kingdom, and he says yes, and he grants us his gift of what I like to call total amnesty for all crimes against the king. And he fills us with his spirit, and, he, and we step over the line into the kingdom of light. 
Now, the moment this happens, you get a new target on your back. And the reason is before you were part of his kingdom. Was he working your life? Yes, but now you have become a threat because you've switched sides. Now you're no longer a child of darkness, as he said earlier. You are a, you're a child of light. In Ephesians, he says, later in chapter five, he says, you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. And as a member of the kingdom of light who's been forgiven and gifted and filled with his spirit, you are now a threat to the, to the kingdom of darkness, which means that he will do everything in his power to catch us, to derail you. He will do everything in his power to discourage. Ever feel that way? Discourage, distract. No, no, no. Don't look over here. No, no, let me distract you. Stop looking at what's important. Look over here. Discourage, distract, and derail you. Number three, at least in number three, that this, the war is real. You know, I think that often, even as believers, we think, ah, now we've come to Jesus, and I know, yeah, there's a Satan, whatever, but I don't know, you know, I feel pretty safe. Um, and, and what I'm saying is that, hey, the, when we, this war is not war games, You know, weeks ago, Russia was doing war games. Now it's real bullets, right? Like, like it's no longer, we're no longer preparing. It's real. The bullets are real. The danger is real. I think we, what we need to understand as followers of Jesus, this, this war that we are engaged in, they're real bullets. The enemy is after you. He's out to destroy you. He's out to destroy your family. He's out to destroy this nation. He's out to destroy Ukraine right now. Like the, the war is real. Um, and the New Testament continues to remind us this. For example, there in your note sheet, in 1 Peter 5, this is what uh, the apostle Peter says. He says, be alert, like be on your game. Why? Uh, in the Greek, it actually says, be sober. In other words, don't be spiritually under the influence, you know? Don't be going through life. You need like your, uh, your life group leader to be your designated driver through life. You don't need your spouse to be your designated driver. No, you need to be alert. Uh, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What, what Peter is saying, as a follower of Jesus, the enemy is stalking you. We'll talk about this more in just a minute. Okay? Now, the good news about all of this is that Jesus, the New Testament, super clear that when we come to Jesus because of our relationship to him, because we're connected organically to him through his Holy Spirit, that we are, remember, we're in Christ. We're networked. Because of that, that we share in his power and authority over the evil one. We're not on our own. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. However, this victory is not automatic. That if we're going to win, 
we have to learn how to plug into his power and we have to use all the resources he's made available, otherwise we'll lose. So let's take a look at that. Probably the most famous passage in the New Testament, the whole Bible, about spiritual warfare is in Ephesians 6. And we're going to look at the first couple verses of that passage in just a minute. But before we do, I want to set it up. This is super important. We always need to read Ephesians 6 in light of Ephesians 1. So remember, Ephesians 1 is the deep dive we did about who we are in Christ, about the epic vision. And I don't know if you remember this, but after Paul lays out this epic vision, he says, so I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you can see the reality of what I've been talking about. And he gives them several examples of what he's praying for specifically. And the last thing he's praying for, he says, I I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open so you may know, catch this, the power that's available to you as a follower of Jesus. He says, this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God far above all rule, authority, and dominion. So what we learn in the New Testament is that when Jesus died on the cross, that was his definitive blow, his victory over the enemy. In Colossians 2, it says he was stripped of his powers. And so Jesus has now been raised to the top place of authority in the cosmos. He's not yet taken his power, in the words of Revelation, begun to rule, like, like begun to bring the kingdom in fullness. But he is, he's over all creation. And as followers of Jesus who are networked with Jesus through his Holy Spirit, we share in that power. We share in that authority over the evil one, but we have to take advantage of it. It's not automatic. And so with that background from Ephesians 1, let's look at what he says in Ephesians 6. So he says in Ephesians 6, he says, finally, so he's coming to the end of his letter, he says, be strong in the Lord. So in the Greek, it actually says, be strengthened in the Lord. In other words, that the strength comes from the Lord, Paul's acknowledging that, that, that kind of like the, like the branch has to stay connected to the vine to receive the, the life. So we have to stay, like our strength comes from the Lord. It's not from us, but we have to be strengthened. We have to access that power. So he says, be, strength, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. What power? The power he described back in chapter one. So he says, uh, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he says, put on the what? Yeah, the full armor of God. Underline that. We'll come back to it. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes. This is what Peter was talking about. He says, Paul agrees with me. He's just joining in. He says, you know, the enemy is scheming against you. He's stalking you and he's scheming. He's scheming against you. He's scheming against your marriage. He's scheming against your family. He's scheming against your life group. He's scheming against this church. He's scheming against our nation. And catch this, he's he's brilliant. He's brilliant and he's super experienced. He's He's been watching the human race since it began. He knows every kind of pitfall, every kind of vulnerability. We're all wired differently, aren't we? Like your vulnerabilities and mine may be completely different. 
Like, like, I know one area that the enemy will never tempt me in, Lord willing, uh, is gambling. Like, I am just not, I, like, gambling doesn't appeal to me. It just seems really stupid to me. Right? It's like, I'm going to give you my money. You've worked out the odds in your favor. You're going to steal my money. So this is why when you go to Las Vegas, all those amazing casinos, you say, where'd that money come from? Came from you, right? Like you gave them the money, right? Okay, we'll build this incredible place, you know? Give us more money, right? So I only gambled once in my life. It was in high school. I gambled on a Rams game in the playoffs. Horrible. I already get into athletics too much. And back then, as a maniac, and so my team's losing in the frigid outdoor Minnesota Vikings, right? I hate those same Vikings. And, and I already hate those Vikings, but, but now I've got money on the game. I'm losing my hard-earned money. And on top of that, this is humiliating because my friend and I have been trash-talking all week, and I'm going to go back and give him my hard-earned money it was like, it took me days to get over that. It was horrible. Never gambled again. I, the enemy is not going to, he, he knows my weaknesses. Now, your thing might be gambling. You might be like, this is my lucky time. I've lost every other time, but this is my time. And he's coming after you, right? Gambling's your thing, but it's not my thing. Do you understand what I'm saying here? We're not all the same. And he's scheming, like he's not going to waste time tempting me with gambling. <laughs> Be a waste of his demonic energy. <laughs> and so he's going to scheme against us. And he says, so put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And it says, for our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It may look like it. It may look like it's your spouse. It may look like it's your employer. It may look like it's the government. It may look like it's this political party. But behind all these, there are powers behind the powers. He said, that's our real enemy. And he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And look what he says. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are the same forces that back in chapter one, he said that Jesus has been raised above them through his death on the cross. And so what he's saying is that you need to strengthen yourself in the Lord, in his power, in his authority. You are connected to Jesus. You're seated with him in the heavenly realms. You need to access that power. You need to do whatever it takes to strengthen yourself in the Lord. And then you need to put on the full armor of God. Now, from this point on, he goes on in this chapter, and we'll look at it in life group study. We just don't have time this week, or right now. 
But, uh, but he goes on to give some examples of what does it look like to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? What's it look like to put on the full armor? And so he begins using this warfare metaphor, and he, he says, well, we need to do things like we need to put on the belt of truth. We need to put the gospel of peace on our feet. We need to put on the chest plates, the breastplate of righteousness. We need to put a, a helmet of salvation on our head. We need to have the, 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 the shield of faith. We need to have the sword of the spirit, right? And so, but catch this. As Paul lays out examples of what it means to gear up, he's not describing secret weapons. As if, okay, the only place in the Bible, he talked about Ephesians 6. No, these are just a kind of graphic uh, visual, visual metaphor to help us understand what it looks like to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and to... Uh, to put on our armor in this battle, right? So, so for, he's been, the, these things he's telling us to put on, they're, they're like exactly what he's been telling us from chapters throughout the whole book of, uh, of, whole letter of Ephesians. Like, let me give you an example. He says, put on the belt of truth. What he's saying is, as followers of Jesus, we need to people, be people who always embrace the truth wherever it leads us. And whether it's truth about ourselves, truth about God, truth about life, truth about politics, truth about political parties, truth about business, that as followers of Jesus, we always need to embrace truth. That any time we reject truth because we don't want to see it, that we leave ourselves open for attack of the enemy. That's the point. That's why in chapter four he said, don't lie to each other anymore because we're members of one body. Like when we, when we compromise truth in our life, we invite the enemy to attack us with deceit. Uh, when he says, take up the, uh, the, the breastplate of righteousness, Paul's been telling us for the last three chapters, what does it look like to live a life that's righteous? And he says, at any time we compromise that, we, we make ourselves vulnerable. It's like in chapter four, he said, hey, we need to put off anger in our life. He said, he said um, don't let the sun go down on your anger in chapter four. He said, because if you hold on to your anger and your bitterness, he said, it provides a foothold for the enemy. See, so these aren't like secret weapons. He's just using a new visual to help us understand, hey, you're in a battle. You know, if you want to win, Here's how you win. So it raises a question. So what happens if we put on some of the armor, but not all the armor? Well, where do you think it, the enemy is going to attack? Okay, well, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to hold up my shield of faith. I'm, I'm trusting God, but I'm taking off the belt of truth. Well, where do you think he's going to attack? With doubt? No, you got the shield of faith. That's... you. Know, and this is what we often do as followers of Jesus. We try to make up for disobedience in one area with obedience in a different area. So what we try to do is that, well, I'm gonna hold on to the truth, but I'm a person of integrity. I, I tell the truth. I'm committed to that. But we take the, the shoes of peace off that he's been talking about since chapter two, how 
how Jesus has come to break down the walls between Jews and Gentiles and create this new family of God. And in chapter four, he says, we need to make every effort to preserve the unity of the body and the bond of peace. Like he says, we have to fight disunity at every level. And so he so says, well, I'm a person of integrity. I always tell the truth. I hold on to the truth. Well, what about this disunity in this relationship? What about this brokenness in the body? No, we're going to hold on to that. I'm going to refuse to forgive. I'm, well, you see what we're doing? It's like we're just giving that, we're just directing the enemy where to attack is all we're doing. And so we need to put on the full, uh, full armor. Okay, now number four. So the fourth principle goes like this, and it's super important, that the core battle is for your mind. We need to understand this. Often when we think about spiritual warfare, we think of the more extreme or bizarre, which does happen, right? We, we talked about an example today. It's a demonization that happened when Jesus was teaching. Does that happen? Yes, that happens. We get calls here at Rocky Peak fairly often. I'm seeing spirit beings in my room. Like, what do I do? Um, is the, yes, this happens, but that's not the primary way the enemy attacks us. The primary way the enemy attacks us is through our mind, through our ideas. In fact, I've told you this before, but I want you to highlight, neon lights around, we'll talk more about this next week, but that spiritual warfare at the highest level is at the level of ideas. And the reason is, if the enemy can control how we think, he can control how we feel. And if he can control how we feel, he can control what we do. And this has been his tactic from the very beginning. You know, the first time we're introduced to Satan is in the Garden of Eden when he comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And and do you remember how he attacked them? He attacked them with an idea. And here was the idea, and catch this, this is the idea behind all bad ideas. This is the idea behind every temptation. And the idea was very simple. I know it doesn't look like this, based on your experience, but God is not good. I know it looks like he's good, I know all the things he's done for you, but the reality is he's trying to hold you down. He's trying to hold you back. And if you wanna experience life to the full, if you wanna develop all your potential, if you wanna be like God, you have to break out. You have to chart your own course and catch this. You have to redefine what's good and evil. You have to define it for yourself. And this is what's behind every temptation you or I will ever face. That if you want life, if you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, you can't trust what God's telling you. You have to chart your own course and define for yourself what is good and evil. And of course, they, they bit, they bit the lie, and the result was death, which is always the result, death at every level, always the result. This is why Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning, that's what he's referring to in John chapter eight. And this is his methodology. His primary tactic is to control the way we think. And so there in your note sheet, in John eight, 
He says, there is, Jesus talking about Satan, he says, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. He's the father of lies, all right, so let's, let's review where we've been. Right, let's review where we've been, and then I want to ask you one key question. So what we've seen today is that according to Jesus, right, that according to the New Testament, according to the Word, that, that the enemy is very real. Um, and the moment you became a follower of Jesus, you stepped over the line from the kingdom of darkness, and there's a new target on your back. Um, that that number three, that the war is real. This danger is very real. There's, he's out to destroy you. He's out to destroy your family. He's out to destroy your life. He's out to destroy this country and so on. He's out to destroy this world. And number four, his primary tactic is the way we think. Attacking the way we think. Now, that leads to a very important question. So there on your, on your note sheet, there's a section called Supernatural, the Key Question. Now, I'm going to ask this question. For some of you, this is going to make sense right away. For others, it'll take about three minutes. But here we go. The question is, are you learning to take your thoughts captive? Now, for some of you, this will be familiar language. You've been a Christian a while. You've heard this language. Whether you understand what it means uh, all to, you know, where it comes from, I don't know, but you may or may not. For others of us, it'd be brand new. So I'm going to explain the background of this question. So in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a very famous passage where Paul is talking about his role of he and his team as apostles. What's his job description as an apostle? And this is what he says there in your note sheet. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So he's using military metaphor here. And he says, as, as an apostle, um, uh, as with part of his apostolic team, he says, we're in the midst of a war. And he says, with the weapons that we have, you know, just like we just talked about the armor and the weapons uh, of warfare in Ephesians 6, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, catch this, they have divine power supernatural power, to demolish strongholds, all right? So Paul is presenting himself now as like a, a general of an attacking army who's attacking a stronghold, a fortress of the enemy. And he says that, that God has given him these supernatural weapons to attack the fortress. The question is, what is the fortress? In this metaphor, what is the fortress? Well, he goes on and he says, this is what he taught. He says, we demolish arguments. I want you to underline that. This is the fortress. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So Paul says, hey, my job as an apostle is to go around and to attack arguments. But I don't, it's really hard. I'm not sure that's the best word, all right? So I want to, this is one of those times I want to give you the Greek word. I think it's going to be worth it, all right? Because it's hard to capture it in English. So the, the Greek word for, for arguments there is the word logismos. And I'm going to expel it for you, all right? So it's, it's L-O-G-I-M-O-S. L-O-G-I-M-O-S. Logismos. So what does it mean? Logos must, do you hear that word like logos in there? Like the logos, you know, like Jesus was the logos. Um, do, you, do you hear the English logic coming out of that, right? 
So, so Lagos Moss is talking about thoughts. It's talking about paradigms. It's talking about worldviews. They translate here the arguments, but we're not talking about like the argument of a husband and wife, but like the arg- like worldview arguments or uh, like what's God like and, and what's our relationship with like and, and how, how can we have a relationship with God? These, these big picture thoughts. And so Paul says, my job is the enemy has, these, his, has all these logos moss that he's using to deceive people. And he says, my job as an apostle is to go around and to tear down these logos moss that are holding people in bondage and so they can be set free and become part of the kingdom and in the truth. You remember what Jesus said? You will know the truth and the truth will what? So Paul says, my job is to tear down these worldviews, these false ideas that the enemy has used to enslave people. And then look, look how he finishes up his metaphor. He says, so we demolish Lagos Moss and every pretension that sets itself up, like in a, in a war, against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient. So you see how he's working the metaphor here? He says, we, there's these false teachings, these false ideas. He says, our job is to tear them down. And when you tear down the fortress, right, you have the prisoners inside. And now you capture those, those, those wrong thoughts and you bring them captive under the leadership of Jesus. And when you do, people go free. Now, men and women, this is the charge on each of our life. Contextually, he's talking about his role as an apostle. But the application for our life, this is really our job, is that every one of us has all these thoughts, opinions, perspectives, beliefs, convictions. And you say, well, well, about what? (laughs) About everything. We've all grown up in this culture. We'll talk about this more next week. We've all grown up in this culture. Like, like, let me talk to those of you you who are men that you're married or you once were married or you want to be married, all right? So let me talk to you for a second. What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a husband? See, we, we all have this mental image. We all have a script that we've picked up, like what it means to be a husband, Often that has been formed by, how's it been formed? By your parents. Maybe what you saw, what you saw in key people in your life. Um, It's been formed by media, right? Which if so, we're in trouble, right? Because media is constantly representing husbands as the doofus of the year. Right? Stop and think of a sitcom where there's a, a father you would respect, a husband you would respect. And, and so, so our, our culture, we've, we've got this longest moss in our head of what does it mean to be uh, a husband? And for some of us, we could be that uh, in the last service, literally, as I said, what does it look like to be a, a, the big, uh, uh, a good husband? And someone yelled out at the back, Yes, dear. (laughs) 
I said, that's a longest moss that needs to be torn down in the name of Jesus, right? <laughs> right, that's, and then you have the other side where for some men to be a, a Christian husband means that I'm the head of this family, everyone does what I say, I'm in charge, I get the big piece, I get the recliner. That's a logus moss of the enemy, right? Like, how can we become men who are renewed followers of Jesus, loving our wives and family well when we're taking our script from culture? In the name of Jesus, we have to tear down these logus moss. We have to come back to the word. And what is true for husbands is true in every area of our lives. What do you believe about finances? What do you believe about success? What do you believe about relationships? What do you believe about our relationship with God? What do you believe about who God is and how, what he requires of us? What do you believe is the path to success? What do you believe about human sexuality? What do you believe about gender? What do you believe about politics? We are full of these logos moss that we have absorbed throughout our life. And many times we come to Jesus, and we're followers of Jesus, but we have enemy outposts in our minds. And we have never, in the name of Jesus, torn those down one by one to set ourselves free. Amen? Okay, so the question, so how do we then how do we take thoughts captive? How do we work? Well, Jesus models this for us so beautifully. You know, at the start of the day, we, we, we talked about Jesus, like right after his baptism, which is really sort of the official start of his ministry, um, the first thing the Holy Spirit led him to do was to go into the wilderness, into the desert. For us, wilderness, we think of like Yosemite, but like desert, right? You go into the desert for 40 days of isolation, 40 days of solitude, to seek his father, to pray, to fast, to prepare for this incredible ministry he had. But we're told in the Gospel of Mark that this was a time of temptation, uh, spiritual warfare as well. And as you know, at the end of the 40 days came the final flurry of the final three temptations. Of course, Jesus didn't know there'd be three at the time. You know, it makes it easier if you know how many are coming. We know now. And we call them the three temptations, but at the time, I don't think that's, I think it would be more like three ideas. Because we, we look back now, we know that they were temptations, but, but Jesus had to figure this out on the fly. And, and so they were really like, okay, if you're the Messiah, here, let me give you three suggestions of how to approach this. And um, if you're familiar with that, and we're going to look at our life group study this week, and uh, if you're not in life group, you can see the reference there and read it for yourself, but we're not going to talk about the three temptations, but what I want to talk is the three responses. A lot of you will know this. Every time that the, the enemy came with a new proposition, how did Jesus respond? Yeah, he quoted scripture, right? It was actually quoted from the book of Deuteronomy three times. And the question is, why did he do that? Is it just that a verse a day keeps the devil away? <laughs> yeah, no, because the devil quoted scripture back at him. No, you know what was happening? Jesus was taking thoughts captive. As the proposition came, he ran that 
idea through the grid of God's word to see it if aligned with his father or not. And each time he said, no, that's not the way my father does things. Men and women, if we are gonna be people that take thoughts captive, that tear down the enemy's citadels in our brains, in our lives, we've gotta do two things. We've gotta know the word. And as followers of Jesus, we should know the word better every year than the word before. Because Jesus says in John 17, he says, Father, sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. He says, your word is truth. For Jesus, this was his grid. So we need to know the word. We need to reflect on the word. We need to meditate on the word. We need to memorize the word. But then secondly, we need to get the habit of running every opinion, every thought, every uh, conviction through the word of God to say, hey, is this the truth of God or is this a logos moss that, that I picked up from my culture, my background, my political party, my education, my career, my family. It's really not the truth that has set me free. This is an enemy fortress, and I need to tear it down and take it captive and make this lie obedient to the truth of Jesus so that I can walk in freedom and rise with Christ to live the life that he died to give me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we come once again calling on you, as always, that we know, Lord, it's one thing to study these things, but it's another for you to reveal them spiritually to us, how true they are, and then to shepherd us by your Holy Spirit. So our prayer, Lord, is you would show us who we are in Christ. You would show us the power that we share with you. You would show us that we're seated with you at the right hand of the Father, that we have access to that authority. You would show us how to be strengthened in the Lord Jesus and in his mighty power. You would show us how to pull up, put on the full armor of God. You would show us how to not compromise one piece of armor for another, and you would show us how to demolish the Lagos Moss, the citadels, citadels of darkness in our brain, that we would bring them under your leadership, that we might know the truth, and the truth might set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.